One of the greatest complexities of life is that of human tragedy. Because tragedy is an inescapable part of our existence, art, as it imitates life, attempts to grapple with this conundrum by presenting its own moral positions. While the theater may have been the stage whereby human tragedy was explored in the days of Shakespeare, today, this moral quandary of tragedy, it dominates our television screens. And the art imitating life category, the Sopranos, presented an extreme. Good people died unjustly, bad people died justly, and in the end, the main character, Tony Soprano, is left, his fate is left only to much debate and speculation. Does he die? Does he live? Does it even matter? In the world of the Sopranos, it's presented as either survival of the fittest or the end result of random chance. It's how the Sopranos deals with human tragedy. AMC's Breaking Bad creatively attempted to give more of an explanation to the existence of human tragedy than most shows ever attempted to do. In a world of meth, cartels, the DEA, good people died unjustly, bad people died justly, but in the end, good souls survived and the one truly bad man suffered his inevitable fate. Critically acclaimed HBO series, The Wire, took an entirely different approach when attempting to explain the existence of human tragedy. And a show that endeavored to pull back the veil on life in the American inner city, you know, a show that featured cops and drug dealers and addicts and dock workers, the sex trade unions, politicians, the edu educational system, news media, kind of covered everything. But in The Wire, in presenting the American inner city, everyone was actually a victim. And the core source of human tragedy could instead be laid at the feet of a broken, corrupted system. By presenting the ugly underworld of biker gangs, FX's Sons of Anarchy has more recently demonstrated the end result of a culture moving towards nihilism and a world devoid of any meaning, where chaos is the only norm. Each individual in this world is free to establish their own code of morality and ethics, since in the end, the only inevitability is a human tragedy or the reaper comes for us all at one point or another. Showtime's Dexter also took a bizarre stab at this human tragedy. Can a serial killer function in a world of injustice? The answer to this show is obviously yes, as long as the serial killer obeys the code. Though good people still face tragedy, this show held to the core idea that if everyone adheres to an overarching ethic, we can ensure justice will ultimately reign supreme. How about NBC's hit show, Scandal? In a fictional world of politics and PR spin, the ends always justifies the means. Olivia Pope presents a world of moral ambiguity where even those who murder, commit adultery, rig elections, lie, and ruin innocent lives can still wear the white hat or be considered gladiators as long as the public good is ultimately served. Of all the recent shows I've watched, none does a better job, I believe, of being honest with the reality and obvious complexities of human tragedy 
than HBO's Boardwalk Empire. Now, I'm not going to give a spoiler because it just ended two weeks ago and Andy's already looking at me and I was worried about that. But in Boardwalk Empire, we find a time period piece based in Atlantic City during the Prohibition. And this show never mixes messages. While the show features notorious gangsters in America during the 20s, in the end, good people die, good people survive, bad people die, bad people survive. Such is the way of life, isn't it? Now, while there are those who often point to the existence of human tragedy as evidence against the existence of God, there are two realities often overlooked by these critics. First, human tragedy, it exists. Like you can't get away from it. Therefore, every religion, every philosophical position has to find some way to explain it. It's not as though you can escape it or ignore it. It is in your face all the time, which means can you honestly say you're okay with living in the moral conclusions of Sons of Anarchy or Dexter or Scandal or any of these shows where art imitates life, that's miserable. That's horrible. That's empty. The second point, aside from the fact that human tragedy is inescapable, is the reality that Christianity, in the face of human tragedy, it doesn't avoid the issue at all. As a matter of fact, this morning, we're going to see tragedy presented in a brutally honest way as Acts 12 unfolds like the quintessential gangster film. A good guy dies an unjust death. Another survives against all odds. An evil crime boss gets whacked. And in the end, 16 of his lieutenants are caught in the crossfire. And in the midst of all of this, Acts 12, we're going to try to unpack a core meaning behind human tragedy and consider how we should view this tragic state of affairs. Now, before we get to Acts 12, we should mention that Luke closes Acts 11 by informing us that at the end of this year-long period of ministry, Barnabas and Saul and Antioch, a prophet named Agabus, tried to convince my wife that'd be a great name for a son, but she's not buying into that. Agabus comes to Antioch, and he prophesies that a great famine was going to take place throughout all of the world, mainly impacting the brethren dwelling in Judea, and because this area would be hit the hardest, the disciples there in Antioch, each according to his ability, determined to send relief. Now, last Sunday, we kind of allowed our time to be monopolized by examining the generosity of these disciples. I would encourage you to go back to last Sunday's Bible study, because we addressed giving, generosity, but we kind of took it from a different angle. I think you'll find it interesting. But either way, Luke includes a detail in the final verse of Acts 11. We weren't able to get to last Sunday, but it does demand our attention for just a moment. According to verse 30 of Acts 11, the church sends their financial gift via Barnabas and Saul to the elders in Jerusalem. Now, we were introduced to deacons back in Acts chapter 6, but this detail is important because it's the first reference to elders operating within the church community. This is the law of first mention, the first place that it comes to our attention 
as part of the church community. Now, in order to understand the role of an elder, you should note that in Scripture, we find three different Greek words all assigned to the same role. Elder, bishop slash overseer, and pastor slash shepherd. In the Greek, this word, elders, is presbyteros, which was a term that could be translated as a rank or a position of responsibility, obviously within the church. In 1 Timothy 5, verse 17, Paul would say, let the elders, presbyteros, who rule well be counted of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. While discussing the qualifications of men that would fill the role of bishop, in 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, Paul uses a different Greek word. He uses the word episcopope, which is a combination of two words, epi, meaning over, and scope, meaning to look or to watch, a telescope. It's how we see, literally. It could be translated bishop or overseer. That's where we get that term as well. Then we find a third word in Ephesians 4, verse 11. Paul says that within the church community, Jesus gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. The Greek word pastor is poemen, which means a herdsman or a shepherd. Now, there's an obvious question that should come to your mind that we have to address. How do we know that these three different Greek words are all speaking towards the same person and that individual's responsibility within the church? And the answer? Well, we have two predominant instances where all three words are included in the same passage, speaking of the same person. In 1 Peter chapter 5, the first four verses, he writes, The elders, presbyteros, who are among you, I exhort. I'm a fellow elder, presbyteros, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory which will be revealed. And then he says to the elders, shepherd, poemo, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as, catch the third word, overseers or episcopos, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not being lords over those who've trusted you, but being examples to the flock, that when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Clearly, Peter's writing to one person using all three words in connection to them. In Acts chapter 20, we see another example of this. Verse 28, Paul says to the Ephesian elders, which are introduced in verse 17 as presbyteros, he says to them, keep watch over yourselves and all of the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, episcopos, be shepherds, poema, of the church of God, which he has bought with his blood. So we find another example, all three Greek words being used to describe the same person. Now, why three Greek words? Well, I think it's important to understand that these three words describe three different aspects of the role of an elder, bishop, overseer, or pastor. This word elder or presbyteros is a reference to the responsibility of the position. It's kind of the more official title. You are an elder. You have a responsibility that comes with that particular position. Bishop overseer or episcopope is a reference more to the nature of the position. As an elder, as someone who shoulders this responsibility, it's your job, the nature of your job, to oversee the church 
to ensure that people are safe and people are being fed and needs are being cared for. That's your job, the nature of the position. But then pastor, shepherd, poem, is a reference to now the activity. So you're an elder, you shelter this responsibility. The nature is to oversee, but how do you go about doing that? Well, the activity of the person, you care for practical needs. And so we see that three Greek words describing this role of elder, all kind of giving different aspects, but rounding out our understanding of this role within the church. Now, as we transition into Acts 12, there's something we need to keep in mind. There's been a development behind the scenes, historically, though the religious leaders of Judaism have always positioned themselves against Christianity, right? I mean, we know that to be true. They rejected Jesus. They executed him. They resisted word of his resurrection. They resisted his followers. They've arrested Peter and John on two different occasions. There've been, uh, they've spearheaded a persecution led by Saul of Tarsus. The religious leaders, the establishment of Judaism, of this area, they were against Christianity from the beginning. And yet, for the first decade plus, while the religious establishment, the government, might have not liked them, the people at large, the, the masses, they really didn't care. I mean, a lot of them converted. Those that didn't were, were, for the most part, indifferent. You see, for the first decade or decade and a half, the religious establishment hated the church, but the population, they didn't really care. They allowed them to do their thing, to operate in peace, etc. And yet now that we move into Acts 12, this dynamic has totally shifted. Why? Because this group of Jews, this church, well, they've begun to accept Gentiles into their mix. And if there was one thing that the Jews hated more than the Christians, and that was the Gentiles. And as a result, because they were now breaking from tradition, breaking from their heritage, breaking from the aesthetics of Judaism, they now, the masses, begin to revolt against the church. And we will see this play itself out throughout the rest of our travels through Acts. The mob has turned against them. Well, we read verse 1, chapter 12, that about that time, so in context, Saul and Barnabas are making the 300-mile journey to Jerusalem. We don't know at what point in the chapter they arrive. They do. They bring this love offering, this gift. The whole region's being ravished by famine. Josephus, first century historian, writes about the, the climate of Jerusalem. It was horrible. People were starving to death. It was a real brutal time to live in this area. While this is all happening, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread, so when he had arrested Peter, Herod put him in prison, delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Now we're told about that time, Herod the king. There's a lot of Herods in the Bible, a lot of Herods in the New Testament, and this can become a little confusing. For context, this is the third Herod mentioned in the first four or five books here in the book of Acts. This Herod is the grandson of Herod the Great and the nephew of Herod Antipas. Herod the Great 
was Herod when Jesus was born. Herod Antipas was Herod while um, Jesus was being sentenced and executed. Now this third, Herod Agrippa I, has come to power. And we're told that he stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Whereas earlier persecutions of the church were based upon, well, to say it kindly, maybe misguided religious convictions. I mean, Saul at least had a purpose behind his, his persecution of the church. But now this new wave of opposition instigated by Herod, it's nothing more than a political maneuver. There's no conviction behind it. He just sees that his polls rise the more he harasses the church. Now keep in mind that since Augustus confirmed Herod in 30 BC as ruler over Judea, this king of the Jews, this Herodian dynasty, was nothing more than a proxy arm for the Roman Empire, which means that the, this detail included by Luke, who's our author, it means to indicate that this is the first time that now we're not seeing the religious leaders persecute the church or the mob persecuting the church, but actually Rome persecuting the church because Herod stood for Rome. And so this is an important detail. We're told that he killed James, the brother of John. Now, while Stephen had been the first martyr, Acts 7, this murder of James you should note, is an earth-shaking, game-changing kind of event. James. Now, don't confuse him with the book of James. That's the half-brother of Jesus. This is a different James. James, who is the brother of John. He's one of the 12 apostles. In addition to that, he was part of Jesus' inner circle. There were times, three instances to be specific, where Jesus leaves nine behind and he takes three with him the Mount of Transfiguration, a great example, Peter, James, and John. And so James has been part of the inner circle. He's one of the 12 apostles, and he is now dying. He's the first of the apostles, with the exception, obviously, of Judas, to have died. And we're told that he dies, he's executed by Herod, with the sword, which denotes that he's, he's executed by beheading, which is kind of strange. Like, it's unlikely that James is a Roman citizen. So you kind of have to ask yourself, why wasn't he stoned to death? Because that's the way that the Jews executed. Or why wasn't he crucified? Which is the way that the Romans executed non-citizens. Why beheading? And I think the answer here is that, well, for the most part, it was an illegal, unlawful execution. That Herod had no authority to do it. That James was beheaded in much the same way that Agrippa's sister, a woman by the name of Herodias, executed another one of our heroes of Scripture, that being John the Baptist. John, who's a Jew, was also beheaded, wasn't he? It's an unlawful execution. Now, because Herod, we're told, saw that the beheading of James pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also, however, according to our text, because it was the days of unleavened bread. Peter was placed in prison He's under a constant detail by four squadrons of soldiers till after Passover when he would be brought out and presumably executed just like James. Now this four squads of soldiers, this would have been, according to Roman history, a total of 16 Roman guards. And what they would do is they would operate on a four-man rotation every six hours. There would be two guards 
chained to Peter's right and left with two standing guard outside of the cell, which is weird, right? It's not as though Peter's a violent criminal. It's not as though he's, he's proven to be a threat. Like why an overkill of security for little old Peter? Well, if you remember, Peter and prison cells haven't mixed very well, have they? As a matter of fact, Peter's already been arrested once. He's been placed in prison once. And what took place? Acts 5, we're told that he and John, prison break. An angel miraculously lets them out. And so Herod, knowing this guy and cells don't work well, he goes overboard, but he makes sure there's no way this guy is getting out. Verse 5, so Peter's therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers. The guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now it's, it's the night before the execution. It's that night. The next day, the deed is going down. Herod will bring him out. And Luke, to set the scene, he gives us kind of two groupings of activity. First, there's the church. And what are they doing? We're told they're in constant prayer. In the Greek, this word constant, the Greek word, it presents the idea of something being stretched to its fullest, like stretch Armstrong, to the point of breaking. You can't go any further. The only other place, interestingly enough, that we find this Greek adjective is in 1 Peter Chapter four, verse eight, when the apostle writes, above all things, have a fervent, same word as constant, love for one another. You see, the idea presented is not that their prayers were continuously occurring, that they were operating on their own shifts, praying 20, 24 hours a day around the clock. No, the idea is that the activity of their prayer was being done to its fullest, basically, in light of what had happened to James, this church, they are praying for Peter in a way they had never prayed before. The other bit of activity we find setting the scene is Peter. So you got a church in constant prayer, praying for their friend, praying for an intervention, praying that God would give him peace. We don't know what they're praying for specifically, but you have Peter. What is Peter doing? We're told he is bound with two chains between two soldiers, sawn logs. He is sound asleep, out cold. Now this detail, it demands a little consideration, right? I mean, put yourself in Peter's sandals between the two guards, sitting there knowing your buddy's just had his head removed. You're sitting there the next day, this is gonna happen to you. The situation looks bleak. Things look dark. Doesn't look like you're getting out of it. I'd be, I'd be pacing. I'd be sweating. I'd be worried. You know, I would probably say the last thing on earth I'd be doing is sleeping. I mean, Peter resting. Like, what's he resting for? He's gonna die the next day. It's not like he needs the extra energy. Why is he resting in the middle of this dark prison, which I'm gonna define as his current set of circumstances? Because his reaction's contrary to ours, isn't it? 
Like while, while most of the time we have in our minds that rest can only be attained after God has granted escape from our circumstances, Peter was able to find rest in the midst of his circumstances. Like so often, and we all have a prison, right? For some of us, it might be work. Oh, work is a prison. And the prison ward is a pain in the neck. Like I feel trapped and I'm miserable. And what do I want? I pray and I pray, Lord, get me a better job. Lord, get me out of this mess. Lord, give me escape or kill everybody. Either way, but get me out of this because I've diagnosed that my core problem is my set of circumstances. And if those can be removed, if those can be alleviated, then oh, life will be better. You know, I know some of you moms, rest is the absence of children. <laughs> You're like, please go away. Please get out of here. Please, I'm losing my mind. It was funny, Jessica was so honest with our son. She, she went to, to go have dinner with some ladies last night, and as she was making her way out, Quincy's like, Mom, Mom, where are you going? And Jess is like, I'm, I'm going to go get some dinner with some friends. And Quincy goes, well, why? And Jess's response was, for sanity, son. <laughs> and it's like, but... But don't we see, oh, oh, which interestingly enough, Quincy was like, his brain was processing. He goes, oh, totally get it, mom. Here's the door. I know that benefits me later on. But, but isn't that true? That we, we find that escape from my circumstances is the key to finding rest. But Peter is in the midst of it. Like there's no more darker, depressing, ominous set of circumstances facing a human being than Peter. And yet he's just sawing locks. He's not worried. Like how could Peter have rest in such a trying circumstance? I think there's three keys and we'll just work through them very quickly. I think they speak for themselves. Obviously he had peace. Like obviously Peter had a peace that clearly surpassed understanding. The Spirit of God was working. He knew God was in total control. Hey, I might lose my head tomorrow, but I'll get ahead. You better believe it. Because this won't be the end of me. I'll be in heaven. Peter might be resting because he realized, I'm going home tomorrow. He recognized that God was in control, that his circumstances were in God's control, and thus why should he freak out about it? Why should he worry? Why should he be bent out of shape? This is exactly where he was supposed to be. You know, I think Peter also, the key is he had some perspective. Like, what's the worst case scenario? Like, yeah, this looks like it's a bad thing, but really, at least I'm gonna be beheaded versus crucified because that's, I mean, that takes days. At least it'll be quick to the point. It'll be over. Kind of a little interested. Those eight seconds where my head's, attached from my body, figuring out what that's like. like. Like he has some perspective, like what's the worst that can happen really tomorrow? You kill me? Is that the worst? I'm not dead. I've graduated, right? Also, you can't help but note that Peter also had practice. This was not his first prison, right? And in addition to that, this was not his first storm. 
Like you go back into the Gospels and you see several instances where Peter, Jesus allows them to go into storms and he teaches them some valuable lessons about having rest. You know, when you begin to develop this discipline in a small way, what happens over time? Eh, the, the next big set of circuit, you know, the Lord already proved, I don't need to worry about it. I went through this, I survived, I'll make it through that. One kid, two kids, three, okay, I'll roll with it. Now behold, verse eight, verse seven. An angel of the Lord, so Peter's asleep. An angel of the Lord stood by him and a light shone in the prison. <laughs> I, I, I like that because the way that it's set up is so the angel shows up, but boom. Like Peter didn't move at all. Like there's another dude in the cell and Peter could care less. I'm sleeping. Like, leave me alone. And so what happens? The angel, I think, is a little disappointed. His grand arrival, ba-boom! And Peter keeps sleeping. So what does the angel do? All right, battery pack. Ba-boom! Light now, right? Uh, Peter rolls over like he's still sleeping. So what happens? We're told that he struck Peter on the side. It's like, I'm here, still sleeping. La light, still sleeping. The angel literally kicks him. Like, dude, this is a prison break. You're still sleeping. And what happens? Peter literally rolls over, hits snooze, and like, that's cool. I'm just going to finish my little nap. Because what happens? Now we're told that the angel raises him up. Like, no, you're not going back to sleep, man. Like, seriously. And the angel physically starts like picking him up to get him ready. And, and what does the angel say? Arise quickly. Peter's not working very quickly. The chains fall off his hands. Peter's just kind of still chilling. So the angel says to him, gird yourself. Okay, Peter, can you get dressed now? You're free. We're going to go someplace. Put on your clothes. So he puts on the clothes, and then they're going to they're gonna keep going. And it's, the angel has to like kind of stop and says, you forgot to tie up your sandals. You're going to trip. So he did this. Then he has to tell him again, now put on your coat and follow me. Peter's one heavy sleeper, man. I mean, that's... I mean, that's its own thing. So, verse 9, Peter goes out. He follows the angel. He had no idea that what was being done by the angel was real. Peter thought he's seeing a vision. So the whole time all of this is happening, he just thinks he's dreaming. Like, this is a weird dream. And he's rolling with it. So we're told that they passed the first and the second guard posts. Peter's just kind of smiling. Check that out. I'm just walking. There's an angel. They come to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opens of its own accord. Like walking into, uh, you know, a restaurant. Like, do doom do doom Like the angels leading him out. They go down one street. 
and the angel departs. How rude, right? What a rude angel. Least he could say is, goodbye, Peter. See you later. No, just kind of like gets him to the point. The angel's like, that was a lot more work than I anticipated. But boom, and he's gone. And we're told that Peter, that he comes to himself. So he begins to like, wait a second. This doesn't look my, like, like my jail cell. Where are the guards? I'm dressed. My shoes are tied. Like he comes to himself. He, he gains this awareness of where he is. And he says, well, now I know that the Lord has sent an angel to deliver me from the hand of Herod and all the expectations of the Jewish people. Like, you know, the thing that I find interesting about this little section of scripture is that while God will do what he can do, like the miraculous, you know, his plans typically operate with the simple expectation that we do the things that we can do. Like, like that God is not an enabler. You know, God removed the chains, somehow blinded the guards, translated Peter through a prison door, opened an iron gate. Like the things Peter couldn't do, God did miraculously. His job. Peter, though, had a responsibility, right? He had to finally get up, had to get dressed. The angel wouldn't dress him. He had to follow the angel. There was an expectation. I'll do the miraculous, but you just got to like get with the program. You got to do the most simple aspects of things. You do that. I'll do the miraculous. It's a good team. I mean, think about the Christian life. God does the things we can't, satisfies the penalty of sin, regenerates the dead into life, yields godly attributes from a person's heart. The things we can't do, God does the miraculous but what are we supposed to be doing? Repent of sin, accept Jesus's work on the cross, walk in the spirit, read your Bible. That's helpful. Attend church. Good thing. Guarding your eyes, placing your thoughts into captivity. Like God will do the miraculous, but you just need to do like the most simplistic bottom barrel part. Like God will not enable. Peter, broken out of jail, work of God, but he had to follow suit, right? So we're told that when he's considering all this, he comes to the house of Mary, mother of John, whose surname was Mark. Many were gathered together praying. As Peter knocked on the door, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. She recognized Peter's voice, but because of her gladness, she didn't open the gate, but ran in, announced that Peter was there. But they said to her, yeah, you're beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, ah, it's his angel. Now, once the sleepiness wears off, the reality of what's just taken place sets in for Peter. He goes to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname Mark, that guy, is important. We'll get to him later. He's the gospel author of, of Mark. Knowing that many were gathered together praying, Peter goes, presents his situation. Now, notice like, the reaction of this prayer meeting. So they're praying for Peter. When Rhoda comes bursting in. You'll never believe it. Peter's at the gate. And what do they do? God answered our prayers. How awesome. Or you left him out there? He just broke out of prison. We need to get him in. No, they actually look at little Rhoda and they're like, you're nuts. Like that's what beside, beside yourself. Think about that in a very literal way. To be beside yourself, to be out of your mind. That's what they're saying. And what's worse is that in, in this, where we're told she's a girl, it's actually in the Greek, a little girl, a damsel. So little, little Rhoda, like little Hattie, 
comes running in. You'll never believe it. And these guys are so rude. They start making fun of her, saying she's crazy. Oh, that's just crazy little Rhoda. Like, what a faithful prayer meeting. Then, no, following Rhoda's persistence, she's like, no, I'm telling you, I'm not crazy. Sometimes I'm a little goofy. I understand that. But no, this time I'm being for real. Peter's outside. She gives some anecdotal evidence. I heard his voice. Luke tells us that they found it easier to believe that she had heard Peter's guardian angel than to actually believe Peter was standing at the gate. Peter's there. No, you're nuts. I'm serious. I heard his voice. Oh, well, must be his angel. Like in Jewish tradition, a guardian angel had the ability to actually take on a person's physical appearance and replicate their voice. Kind of a whole folklore of Judaism. So they chalk it up, well, it must be his angel, which becomes interesting. So they decide, hey, let's go check this out. Here's the point. Was Peter released because of their faithful prayers? Can we just go on record there? No. Like, it's not as though that the prison break happened because, man, these guys just had a lot of faith. They had none. That when God answers their prayer, they don't even believe it. Well, Peter breaks out of prison Figures he'll get to Mary's house. He's standing out there, twiddling his thumbs, looking down the street like, I, they're going to be looking for me. He hears them argue, can someone please open the door? He keeps knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished, which means like there's this commotion. People are excited. They start, not a good thing to do in the middle of the night when the guy standing there has just broken out of prison. A huge hubbub, a large commotion, making a scene. So Peter motions for them to keep silent. Like, dude, shut up. Keep it on the DL. Let's not let everybody know. And then he declared how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, go tell these things to James, as Jesus' half-brother, the other James, to the brethren. And then Peter departed and went to another place. And that's interesting to me, that he departed and went to another place. He knew that there would be a search for him. You know, after his jailbreak at Acts 5, Peter immediately and even in a bold sense, he returned to the temple, right? He gets broken out of prison. Does he go into hiding? No. He goes right back to the temple, starts preaching the things of the Lord. But in this instance, he breaks out of prison and he finds it wise to maybe leave. <laughs> why, why the difference? I, I think that the difference is that, um, well, God didn't tell him to go back to the temple. If you recall in Acts 5, when the angel broke him out, the angel did give them specific instructions, right? Go, stand in the temple, speak to the people the words of life. But in this instance, the angel doesn't say anything, just leaves. And Peter's like, I'm going to see this as an opportunity to get out of here, <laughs> right? So he leaves. And we're told then, as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. But Herod searched for him. And when he hadn't found him, he examined the guards. He commanded that they be put to death. And then he went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. I would imagine there was no small stir among the soldiers. According to, to, to Roman uh, historical documents, the incentive to make sure your prisoner didn't escape was very simple. If your prisoner escaped, whatever punishment they were about to receive would be placed on you. So Peter's going to be executed the next morning. All 16 guards have lost Peter. Herod examines. 
He's inquisitive. He reaches the conclusion there had to have been some role. And he has them all executed, commanded that they should be put to death. But Herod, and we're going to read through a little bit of history here, he had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. That's modern-day Lebanon. But they came to him at once. So he's in Caesarea. And having made Blastus, another great name for a son, but my wife won't let me, having made Blastus the king's personal friend and, and aid, their friend, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So on a set day, arrayed in royal apparel, Josephus tells us that it was literally silver thread, so he's radiating. He sat on this throne, and he gave an oration to them. This is in Caesarea by the sea. You can actually see the, um, the theater, the, the, the portico here where this actually took place. You can go visit, stand there. So he gives this speech. The people started shouting, the voice of a God, not of a man. Then immediately, an a- the angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. He was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God grew and multiplied. Like this is one of those verses where I, I really encourage you not to play Bible roulette, you know, if you're wanting to have a, a morning devotion and you're like, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna see where it lands. He was eaten by worms and died. What's God saying? Like, you know what I mean? Like, that's brutal. Now, I told you, the chapter does play out like a mob flick, right? A good guy dies an unjust death. James. Another good guy. He survives against all odds. Good old Peter. An evil crime boss gets whacked by an angel. Herod, eaten by worms, dies. And in the process, 16 of his lieutenants are caught in the crossfire. These Roman guards. Now, though human tragedy may appear to be random, this chapter does something interesting because it demonstrates a reality that's very difficult to accept that God is in total control. Think about it for a moment. The bad guys. Sure, it's random that 16 guards die as a result of circumstances that are beyond their control, right? But the divine hit that took Herod out was clearly orchestrated, wasn't it? God was very involved. And think about the good guys. Sure, it's random that James was beheaded. We're not given an explanation other than Herod wanted to harass someone from the church. But Peter's jailbreak, clearly orchestrated. Divine intervention, right? Now, now here's the point. If God does intervene in some instances, it means he can intervene in all. Therefore, the decision not to intervene is, in and of itself, an act of God. Now, before you get upset with the implications of this reality, ask yourself a question. What would you prefer in the face of human tragedy? The belief that everything is left to random chance? Or that there does exist some type of divine plan and purpose? I think Luke, he couples James's death with Peter's escape to force us to chew on this reality. Like you can't escape it. Why would Peter be freed, but James not, right? I mean, on the surface, there's no reason one should have died and the other lived. It wasn't as though one was more important than the other. They're both apostles. 
both members of the 12. Not only that, they're both in the inner circle. Peter, James, and John. Like you can't even make the case that the prayers for Peter somehow tip the tide in his favor. You see, the inescapable reality of Acts 12 is that God's intervention in Peter's situation demonstrated his allowance of James's ex- execution. Can't escape it. And I'm not going to sugarcoat it. But our problem with this idea, it rests in two ways. First, you know, we only evaluate human tragedy from an earthly vantage point. When it would be wise for us to consider human tragedy from a heavenly vantage point. Like, why was James executed? Why was Peter spared? I mean, from an earthly perspective, it's very difficult to come up with a rational explanation, right? Seems kind of random. However, if I adopt a heavenly perspective, I can at least come to this conclusion. Doesn't make it easier to swallow, doesn't make it less emotional, but I can come to this conclusion from a heavenly perspective. Why was James executed and Peter freed? Well, James had finished the race set before him. While the finish line for Peter was still not in view. Peter was done. I mean, I mean, James was done, but Peter had more to do. See, we gotta look at it from the other way. It's tragic. But James clearly had finished his race. And that's glorious. You know, the other part of the problem here is that death as a core component of the human experience is either the ultimate tragedy or a most glorious moment. You know, in Hebrews chapter nine, we're told that it is appointed for men to die once and women. But after this, the judgment. So, Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. Now, what this verse tells us is that first, death is inescapable. Appointed for men to die. Secondly, death is not the end of life, but actually a translation into an eternal experience. I'm not dead. I am very much alive. I'm alive in a way I've never been alive before. After this, pointed for men to die once, but after this, there's something after this, after death. And then the existence after death begins, according to Hebrews, with a judgment based on a relationship with Jesus. Understand, James's execution was not a tragedy. It was the most glorious moment of his entire existence. When he was done with the mess we call earth and he is in the presence of Jesus in glory. Instead, real human tragedy, it occurs when a person passes into eternity apart from Christ. It's been said this, and and I'll leave you with this thought. For the believer, for those following Jesus, The worst that this life has to offer is the worst it's ever going to be. But for the unbeliever, the best this life has to offer is the best 
it's ever going to be. That's human tragedy. That's sad. That's depressing, to be very honest. The highest point of this life being the, the apex of my existence? That's depressing. But the worst I'll ever face, the worst I'll ever experience, being the worst I'll ever have to face, that it's all uphill from there? You know the tragedy in this story? I think Peter's sleeping because Peter's ready. And I don't mean to make that sound kind of nihilistic or depressive, but I think we should have a longing And that longing should place things into perspective. This is not my home. This is not where I'll spend forever. I have a friend, a dear friend. His name's Paul Hammontree. He's the pastor of, I still call it Calvary on the Bayou. It's in Baton Rouge. It's the Calvary Chapel. And Paul, great guy, mid-40s, was recently diagnosed with a form of cancer in his nasal cavity and they can't find a neurosurgeon to deal with it because it's already moved through the, the skull into his brain. It's already, it's already metastasized. Best case scenario is a year, but they don't think he'll make it longer than that. It's, it's, it's a, you look at it and it's a tough, tough thing. He's got kids, so much life. Paul dies that's not tragic. If, if he dies, he's just finished his race. Paul has done what we all want. To hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. You got to deal with tragedy. That's not a coping mechanism, friend. I will cry when Paul passes. If he does, the Lord can work. I will shed tears because I will miss my friend. <laughs> but Paul won't have a second thought of me until I'm right there alongside of him worshiping Jesus. How do you deal with human tragedy? It says a lot. So Father, we thank you for your word, what it says to us. In Jesus' name.